0: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. There is no question that by the time the
1: final bill is paid, we will have spent trillions of dollars for our post 9-11 wars. Trillions of dollars.
0: For what? the exact moment when the United States became inextricably bound up with the Middle East? Was it with the invasion of Iraq in 2003? Was it the intervention in Kuwait in 1991? This week on War College, we talk to someone who puts that date a little further back.
2: You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields.
0: Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters.com Managing Editor
2: Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring.
0: Today, we're speaking with retired U.S. Army colonel and historian, Andrew Basevich. Basevich is a conservative who's long been critical of U.S. foreign and military policy. His newest book, America's War for the Greater Middle East, details U.S. involvement in the region over the past four decades. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Glad to be with you.
0: Well, you've taken on uh, just uh, about the most complex subject you probably could. Can we just start off with a very, very basic question, which is what is America's military strategy right now as you see it? Uh,
1: there, there is none. Uh, I mean, my book uh, is, is intended to be a history book. It's not a policy book, and the, the purpose of the book is to recount uh, what has now become an endless string of interventions, large and small, brief and protracted, dating from 1980 and continuing down to the present moment. And indeed, one of the purposes of recounting this history is to suggest that, with rare exceptions, that the United States really has not had anything qualifying as a coherent strategy. We have been engage in sort of a willy nilly problem solving exercise, rarely with any sense of what we're trying to get done.
2: It, it sounds like foreign policy by whack-a-mole, the way you describe it. Why Why do you think that, we, that America doesn't have a coherent military strategy, especially when it comes to the Middle East?
1: The, the foreign policy establishment has not evolved a, a consensus as to our overarching objective. I mean, let, let's let's compare, for example, this war for the Greater Middle East with the Cold War. Cold War begins uh, rather quickly in the aftermath of World War II. People thought World War II was going to be the great victory that to create a peaceful world. It quickly became apparent that was not going to be the case. And as early as 1947, the foreign policy establishment had evolved an approach to dealing with the threat posed by the Soviet Union and more broadly uh, by communism, and that that approach was called containment. It was controversial initially uh, in the sense that as a strategy devised by the Democratic Truman administration, uh, there were Republicans who insisted that containment was not enough. But when Dwight D. Eisenhower became president in 1953, a Republican, he basically affirmed and embraced the idea of containment, and so we had a, a the nexus of a bipartisan approach to dealing with the threat uh, posed by the Soviet Union. By no means did all subsequent administrations faithfully adhere to that in all in all respects, but by and large, containment became a vector that shaped U.S. policy. There has not been an equivalent of that uh, in the war for the greater Middle East.
0: But the Middle East, though, I mean, sorry, I should say that at least some of the Middle East in the current situation comes from the Cold War, doesn't it? I mean, the Syrians not only are allied with the Russians, but I mean, many of the countries in the Middle East are actually using former Soviet weaponry still. Do you see any roots in the policy of containment in what's currently going on?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think I'd expand your point. I mean, it's not simply that the, the predicament that we're wrestling with bears some imprint carried over from the Cold War. I think more importantly, it bears an imprint carried over from the decades prior to the Cold War, when when the Middle East was a, a target of European uh, imperialism. I mean, most famously in the wake of World War I, when the Brits primarily, but the Brits uh, in collaboration with the French basically carved up the ottoman empire and, and created what we call the middle east to suit their own purposes so yes emphatically if we if we want to understand the complexity of the situation we certainly have to look beyond and prior to this period of recurring us military involvement that's that's certainly the case my own book however takes a narrower frame and i'm trying to explain why the United States has employed its military with the consistency that it has since 1980, what the United States was trying to achieve in its various interventions, what actually it did achieve, and with what consequences. Uh, So I take your point about the importance of acknowledging a broader historical context. My particular focus has been on the misuse of American military power in this region.
0: What is what, Where's the starting point? What incident or events do you see as the, as the right jumping-off point?
1: Yeah, my jumping-off point is the uh, promulgation of the Carter Doctrine in January of 1980. Uh, you remember, the Carter Doctrine is a declaration by President Carter uh, designating the Persian Gulf as a vital U.S. national security interest and indeed as a place that the United States now was willing to fight for. And it's important, I think, to remind ourselves that prior to 1980, meaning in the early decades of the Cold War, the United States was certainly prepared to fight uh, for Western Europe. The United States had fought two wars, one in Korea, one in Vietnam, uh, in East Asia, and was willing to fight another one if, if need be. Prior to 1980, there had, there had been no interest or willingness or commitment to fight anywhere in the Middle East. It was, the, the Middle East was a peripheral place as far as the, as the Pentagon was concerned. All that begins to change as a consequence of Carter's declaration, in essence, and by no means do I think Carter understood what was about to occur, but Carter initiated what turns out to be a full-fledged militarization of, of U.S. policy in the region. The very first intervention, albeit a small but a very unsuccessful one, occurs on Carter's watch. He attempts to rescue the hostages held in Iran, the failed mission at, at at desert one but really that opens the floodgates to what becomes a now very long series of interventions undertaken by every one of the subsequent administrations down to the present moment. Stated purposes uh, varying, you know, sometimes uh, it's we're doing this to spread democracy. Sometimes we're doing this for humanitarian purposes. Sometimes we're doing this to, you know, take care of evildoers, uh, but never uh, resulting in anything like the success expected by the architects of policy. And I would argue uh, having, for all practical purposes, made matters worse uh, as a direct consequence of our interventionism.
0: Well, it's actually, it's interesting. Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who may not have been aware or know the history to think about. I mean, Carter, and please believe me, this is not in defense in any way. It's actually, I just want to put a little bit of history into it. I, would, I was thinking, I mean, we were coming out of also a huge energy crisis um, where he went on TV wearing a sweater and uh, the world went mad. I mean, so it's interesting because there are, I th- you got to, and you probably know much better than i do but i mean it seemed like there's a very keen economic interest in addition to everything that was happening with iran when he, when carter made that declaration was that fair to say
1: oh heavens yes i mean so so there is a context there uh, as as well carter's speech january 1980 1980 is of course a presidential election year carter looks like a very vulnerable incumbent so there is a there is a domestic political element here uh, that Carter needs to look strong needs to look decisive if he's going to have a chance to win a second term that's one factor there are geopolitical factors the the Iranian Revolution which uh, topples a valued. US ally in the region that brings to power an anti-American revolutionary ideology in Iran that problem compounded By the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan in December 1979, the month before Carter's address, Uh, we now know that the Soviets intervened in Afghanistan because they were, from their point of view, for defensive purposes, to try to prevent their empire from disintegrating. At the time, however, the perception was that the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan was a precursor. Uh, that the Soviets were on the march, that they were going to march from Afghanistan to Iran, from Iran to Saudi Arabia. And in retrospect, we would say all that is absurd. But nonetheless, things seem to be uh, in a very precarious situation. And at the time, it, it appeared that the American way of life itself uh, was contingent upon having access to Persian Gulf oil. Again, today, we would say that's not true. But in 1979, it appeared to be true. So we have a convergence of factors that lead Jimmy Carter to undertake this this initiative. And I think your key point here was you made reference to the appearing appearing on TV in a cardigan sweater. But more important than that, he had appeared on television in the summer of 1979, making his famous Malaise speech. A term that, of course, he doesn't use in his speech, but making a speech that basically says to the American people, hey, look, we're, we're going down the wrong path. We've gone, we've gone on the wrong path in a moral sense. We need to recover our values. We need to return to, to, to where we were when we launched this American experiment. And Carter said, and the way to do that is to wean ourselves from this dependence upon foreign oil. To turn away from a way of life that, that hinges on uh, the acquisition of material goods. I mean, it was it was a call for a, a great awakening. It was a, it was it was an argument saturated really in religiosity, in a in a, a spiritual a, a summons of a spiritual renewal. And frankly, it just didn't sell. Uh, and I think Carter ultimately accepts that. So his his State of the Union address in January really is a capitulation, a recognition that he's not going to get the American people to change their way of life. The American people want more, not less. They don't want to sacrifice. Ergo, the now new imperative, the recently discovered imperative of fighting for the Persian Gulf. And again, one last point, it begins with the definition of U.S. interests focused on the Persian Gulf. But of course, that, there's a geographical expansion. Uh, So that it's not simply fight for the Persian Gulf. It ultimately ends up being a willingness to fight for an attempt to impose our will on a pretty large swath of the Islamic
2: world. Why? How did we – maybe this is too big of a question, but how did we go from that place? Like the way you describe it from, from Carter's perspective and from the American people's perspective, that makes sense to me. Um, the history there. How do we then go spend the next four decades getting ourselves further entangled in there, especially now when it seems like we perhaps don't need the energy assets as much as we used to?
1: Oh bingo that's a, that's certainly a key point uh if 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 indeed we need uh, oil and natural gas to maintain the american way of life then we probably ought to be defending canada and venezuela rather than worrying about iraq and, and and saudi arabia but your question is how do we go how do we get from there to here i think the best explanation uh lies in the expectations entertained both by policymakers and by the American people with regard to the effectiveness of American military power. Now, let me get to some specifics here. You remember, just as the Cold War was winding down at the end of the 1980s, an outcome outcome that was widely attributed by Americans to American military superiority. In other words, the argument was that The Soviets gave up because they recognized that they no longer could compete with us, particularly in the realm of military technology. I don't buy that argument, but that was an argument commonly made at the end of the Cold War. More to the point, uh, as soon as the Cold War ends, uh, Saddam Hussein invades and annexes Kuwait. George Herbert Walker Bush mounts the response in the form of Operation Desert Storm. The perception is that Operation Desert Storm is one of the great victories of all of history, and an emphatic demonstration of American military supremacy. Again, I suggest in the book that that's an oversimplified interpretation, but certainly that's the way it's seen. My point here is that as we enter into the post-Cold War period, this period of of great American triumphalism, uh, we had won, our system had proven to be superiority, compounded by these uh, inflated expectations about the effectiveness of American military power, there was an absence of appreciation uh, for the complexities of the situation that we were wading into. There was was an unwillingness to learn lessons that were frankly uh, obvious. I'll give you an example. The example would be Somalia in 1992 and 1993. Somalia is part of the Islamic world. It's certainly not, it's not, I mean, it's part of the Persian Gulf in a a rather broad sense, but there's an example of how interventionism is going beyond the places where the oil is located, undertaken for what are are argued to be humanitarian purposes. Uh, It ends in a disaster. It ends in the Mogadishu firefight of October, 1983, a humiliating defeat uh, that where Bill Clinton takes the blame, pulls the plug, leaves. We actually learned nothing from that. You know, what might we have learned from Somalia in 1993? What we might have learned is that the vaunted American military machine, when facing guerrilla forces in an urban environment, don't do very well. But we forgot Mogadishu and basically simply moved on. So I, I think there was a, just a, the mood of the moment, the mood of the post-Cold War era did not invite Serious critical thought, either with regard to u s interests or with regard to what military power can do and cannot do
0: but then, after the Gulf War, I mean if the objective was simply to get Iraqi soldiers out of kuwait it it was a success as far as that went. I mean again, if you've really simplified the objective to what was stated publicly um, but you know after that, uh, we had the oil embargo. Iraq was, uh, I don't know if pushed to the brink, but I mean, there was certainly a lot of suffering inside Iraq, but Saddam Hussein wasn't budged, right? But then we're right back there again.
1: Let me complicate your narrative just a little bit. Sure, sure. That's not what you said was wrong. So we liberate Kuwait, uh, we liberate Kuwait 1991. The unstated expectation is that somebody within Iraq is going to solve the Saddam problem. Of course, that doesn't happen. Saddam survives. To some degree, he survives because of misjudgments made by the United States at the end of Operation Desert Storm. You know, don't need to go into the details, but we facilitated inadvertently Saddam's survival. Well, that causes great anxiety that the bad guy is still there, leads to the policy of so-called dual containment, a policy of trying to contain Iraq and Iran, who, who are mutual adversaries. How do we contain Iraq? Well, we begin by now stationing u s forces on a permanent basis in the region to include stationing u s forces in Saudi Arabia in, in, in a, from an, from a point of view of of, of uh, Muslims in exceedingly sensitive place so the 1990s and, and Americans by and large are oblivious to all this the 1990s really become a period of Continuing the Gulf War of 1991, we spend the entire decade flying combat air patrols in Iraqi airspace, frequently, frequently bombing Iraqi targets. We ourselves begin to sustain attacks, Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, uh, the uh, embassies in Tanzania, uh, in Kenya, the attack on the USS Cole. Osama bin Laden has declared war. Uh, on the United States, this new entity called Al-Qaeda. 1998, the Clinton administration is launching cruise missile attacks against Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. My, my point here is that the war that, that we have now waded into up to our hips uh, continues in the wake of Operation Desert Storm. And by that very fact, calls into question whether or not Desert Storm deserves to be viewed as a victory. Victory means you conclusively achieve your political purposes, not that you just go kill a bunch of bad guys. So the war continues during the 1990s, particularly on the American political right. There are complaints about Saddam Hussein's survival. Remember the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998, which Clinton signs. Uh, committing the United States to finding ways to overthrow Saddam Hussein. When you fast-forward to 2001, to 9-11, an attack by al-Qaeda, but an attack that, with the George W. Bush administration now in power, seems to offer an opportunity uh, to solve the Saddam problem once and for all, and to begin to transform the region as a whole, in order to remove the conditions, giving rise to organizations like al-Qaeda. That's the driving force behind the Iraq War of 2003, again, informed by expectations of American military supremacy. It's supposed to lead to a decisive victory. Guess what? It doesn't, and we're stuck in a quagmire.
0: It would be easy to argue that the United States is actually stuck in two quagmires, right? I mean, (laughs) you have the Gulf and you have Afghanistan as well. I think that a lot of people who were just sitting at home actually didn't know that the U.S. even had troops in uh, Saudi Arabia during that whole period. And on top of that, I I think some people might have been surprised at the idea that, uh, you know, I think the narrative was that U.S. troops had been invited to Saudi Arabia. And therefore, why would anyone be unhappy that U.S. troops were there?
1: Yes. Yes. I think I think one of the one of the key uh issues here is the American people are oblivious uh to those events prior to 9/11. The American people and I think here the media and our political leadership reinforces this uh, notion that that the war whatever the war is that the war began on 9/11. And my argument is no, the war began much earlier in 1980. And in order to understand why 9-11 occurred and and the events subsequent to 9-11, it's it's very important to take on board the U.S. military experience in the region from 1980 up to 2001. We were already in a situation that we did not understand. And the response of the George W. Bush administration was basically to dive in more deeply as a result of 9-11.
2: Why don't we just cut and run? Why don't we just leave now?
1: Well, uh, because the place is a mess. I, I would argue strongly uh, that simply trying harder is not going to produce any more positive results than we've achieved thus far. That there is a requirement to demilitarize, to move toward the demilitarization, to move toward a, to move toward a disengaging the U.S. military from the region. But it can't be done overnight. We can't just sort of w- walk away from it. Uh, I think that to the extent that there – first of all, I would argue strongly uh, that that there are alternatives. I mean, to some degree, it seems to me that the the public discussion of our ongoing military involvement in the region seems to be premised on the assumption that we, we have no choice. We, we have to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, I'd argue that the most powerful country in the world ought to have choices power confers choices we are powerful we're not we're not doomed to con- simply continue down a a misguided path so what 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 is the solution i think the solution is to to begin moving the powers in the region to accept responsibility for policing the region for restoring some element of stability the proximate threat to stability of course is is ISIS, but when you think about it, ISIS is a probably has what thirty thousand, maybe thirty thousand fighters, uh, no navy, no air force, very few heavy weapons, uh, no significant resource base, uh, no allies to speak of. They are certainly vicious killers, but we're not talking to Wehrmacht here. And my argument would be that were those parties for whom ISIS is an existential threat. And that's Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Turkey. Were those countries to recognize that they have a common interest to deal with that threat, they could do so. And we, having made a hash of things, could begin to extricate ourselves militarily. Now, that is a tall order, and it's a tall order because those countries I, ticked, I just ticked off, for the most part, have gripes with one another uh, related to geopolitical interests, related to sectarian differences, various factors. And so the diplomatic challenge of the United States is to get them to set aside those differences and to recognize that, that there is a transcendent common interest. And again, I'm not trying to suggest that that's somehow easy, and we could do it by next Tuesday, but I would argue strongly that simply... Doubling down on this U.S. military commitment, now going on four decades long without without showing signs of success, simply trying harder isn't gonna isn't gonna get us the outcome we want.
0: But it's I, that makes absolute sense to me. There is one thing I don't know that it's a counterpoint. It's just an interesting sort of to the side is that the U.S. It's not that everybody wants the U.S. out of the region either, right? I mean, Saudi Arabia. While it's a complicated ally and there, there's certainly uh, arguments be made about just how much Saudi Arabia might be undermining the U.S. welfare, but they also count on the U.S. for all of the equipment. I assume we do enormous amount of their training too. all of the Gulf states who seem to I mean, they're actually happy to have U.S. forces in the region, right? I mean, they, they're more scared of Iran than they are of uh, having us around.
1: Basically, that's probably true. It's it's not clear to me that the policy of the United States needs to hinge on trying to make Saudi Arabia happy. I mean, you describe them as an ally, a complicated ally. I don't don't even know that I would accept that judgment. Saudi behavior uh, in promoting radical Islamism, uh, as I understand it, doing that in order to try to export uh, their own domestic problems, in many respects has has helped to create this mess i guess it's uh, in 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 diplomatic circles it's a little bit impolite to say that out loud but but the evidence seems to be overwhelming you know they're not our ally they're not our friend now you know they have a right to exist they have legitimate interests uh, to the extent that their interests coincide with ours then we should try to be helpful or supportive but but the notion that somehow United States needs to maintain its military presence in the region because the royal family in Saudi Arabia finds it convenient uh, is some some I personally wouldn't buy into i mean if it were a no cost proposition to us as in, and in some senses I guess it was during the 1950s 1960s at relatively no cost, then maybe you could do it but and this is you know this is one of the things that that, that, I, that strikes me about this war as i as I call it, and that is the remarkable Uh, reluctance to tote up the costs and the implications of those costs. I mean, we've lost thousands of soldiers in one war, Iraq, that was utterly unnecessary. And in another war, Afghanistan, which uh, uh, frankly has been mismanaged, we've got tens of thousands of young Americans who've had their lives shattered, uh, damaged beyond repair, whether we're talking about physical wounds or psychological wounds. There is no question that by the time the final bill is paid, we will have spent trillions of dollars uh, for our post 9-11 wars. Trillions of dollars. For what? And and I didn't even mention the so-called collateral damage that we have inflicted on peoples in the region for whom we were supposedly trying to liberate or to protect. This has been a moral catastrophe so that's a, a consideration it seems to me that very much deserves to be weighed in the balance as we think about uh what 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 we should do uh moving ahead. One of my frustrations related to the i think our our the political scene uh is that there really is no willingness on the on the part of either party to to engage in a larger accounting of what u s military involvement in the region has produced and at what cost. There's plenty of sort of rhetorical, hey, elect me, president, and I'll double down on, on getting ISIS. But there's no willingness to consider what a prior U.S. military involvement has produced and at what cost, and there, and there ought to be.
0: After all of these years of war, what kind of shape is the U.S. military in at this point? Forget about powerful, not powerful. It's more a matter of is the military tired? Um, I mean, is this is this a grinding thing for them, or is it just this is business as usual
2: now?
1: I, I don't have particularly uh, great contact inside the military. Okay. I mean, I've, I've been out of the army longer than I than I was in the army. I, I just I just gave a talk a couple of days ago at the Naval War College uh, in Newport, down the road from uh, from where I live auditorium full of uh, of serving officers and, and some number of, of civilians and i sort of gave my overall critique of a of a of a policy that is uh, wrong headed and uh, quite frankly i got a sense that it, my talk was well received so my guess based on limited evidence very impressionistic is that there is an awareness within the officer corps that uh, their enormous sacrifices haven't necessarily produced much in terms of of positive outcomes. Now, whether that leads to disenchantment or resentment or a a hunger for understanding about uh, why and how things went wrong, uh, I, I don't know. Frankly, given the absence of any serious willingness to take on board what we have been doing militarily. I very much hope that uh, within the officer corps, there will be this willingness to assess critically, to learn, to, to go beyond the platitudes of thank you for your service. And, and I think that it would be healthy for the officer corps, and might even be healthy for the, for the public at large, were the officer corps to undertake that kind of, a, of, a, of an
0: accounting. Going forward, we're obviously in the middle of a presidential campaign. What do you think is possible? Do you see a chance of the situation improving? And I'm not asking you to pick a candidate. Trust me, uh, um, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's your business. So, the,
1: the debate over U.S. national security policy is remarkably narrow. Uh, there, there is, a there has been, and continues to be a, a consensus. Call it the consensus of the indispensable nation. Uh, that the famous phrase coined by Madeleine Albright. It's a consensus that insists that there is no alternative to U.S. global leadership and a consensus that insists that that the primary uh, mechanism or instrument for uh, leadership is military power. And Republicans and Democrats alike have been committed to that proposition. Certainly, Secretary Clinton is committed to that proposition. And therefore, should she win the presidency, I would expect very little Change and very, and, and very little willingness even to ask first order questions about how we got to the situation we're in and, and whether or not there might be alternatives. If Mr. Trump wins, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's kind of a who knows. Uh, he, his statements are so inconsistent that on one day he sounds like more of a hawk uh, than Hillary Clinton. And then the next day he sounds like somebody who is something of a skeptic of the of the uh of the of the record of of US policy in in the region so uh he's just a very very difficult uh read the very inconsistency that seems to be part of his temperament uh has to, ought to give people pause uh because uh you know w- what what he's going to do on wednesday might be the inverse of what he said he was going to do on tuesday and that cannot be a good thing for us, and it cannot be a good thing for our allies. Quite frankly, cannot even be a good thing for our adversaries uh, if they don't have a consistent understanding of of our intentions. That's likely to uh, lead them to go off and do something exceedingly foolish.
0: I have actually, we've talked to uh, we talked to someone not long ago from uh, Naval War College, uh, uh, Jim Holmes, who was talking about how uh, uncertainty is really one of the most dangerous things that there is that when a military or another nation doesn't know exactly what you're going to do, that's uh, more dangerous than even a hostile posture. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. It sounds like you're echoing that thought. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. You bet.
1: Thanks a lot for arranging this. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you're listening to War College via SoundCloud, you may want to hear other episodes about hardware, strategy, and tactics. So try subscribing. The show is available on iTunes. You can reach us at any time by tweeting at us. We are at war underscore college. If you do, you can criticize us, praise us, or just send in ideas for shows you'd like to hear. War College was created by me and Craig Hedick, Matthew Galt co-hosts the show, and our producer this week was Bethel Hampton, whose ears are so sensitive, she knows whether a tree falling in the forest with no one around to hear it actually makes a sound.